Boys and girls, you're dismissed this morning to Children's Church. Everyone else, uh, take out your Bible with me this morning. And uh, we're going to be in a number of places. So I'd invite you to actually turn with me to the place we're going to be at the very end. And that is 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. This morning, we're in a series, uh, really continuing in a series entitled Entrusted. We've been working through this series the last number of weeks as we've considered what does it mean to be a steward of all that God has entrusted us with. And you'll remember as we began, we started uh, talking about that, that stewardship is far more than simply how we steward our wealth. It involves everything of our life. And so we've been walking through what does it mean to be a steward? We considered that two weeks ago. Last week, we considered the stewardship of creation. And today, as we continue in our series on biblical stewardship, uh, we're considering what probably many of you would assume when we entered into our series, what we would consider, and that is the stewardship of our wealth. Now, as soon as I say that, I recognize that in a room this size, there is a lot of opinions surrounding money. Money can be a rather controversial issue because there's often many opinions surrounding it. I don't know about you, but how many of you have had a nice conversation with somebody in your family, maybe your spouse or children, about money? Can I see your hand? And you've seen it from two different perspectives, right? Um, someone said the other day that the two greatest struggles in a marriage that people often fight about is money and the other is sex. And so as we think about money this morning, I think it is an issue that hits home to every one of us. And it can be an awkward conversation. It can be a, it can be a difficult thing to discuss. Even as we think about it in context of a church this morning, uh, it can feel a little awkward. It can feel a little sensitive at times. However, while the Bible, while, while, while many of us, you know, we come to church, um, I thought about it this week. I, this is just not a topic that I love to preach about. Uh, so, some churches preach about money all the time. I, I went back over the last nine years that I've been a pastor here, and I think I can count less than one hand the number of sermons that I preached on money, including missions-giving sermons, all right? So uh, if, if you're with us this morning, can I just tell you this is something that uh, we don't consider probably maybe as often as we ought to. However, while money is a topic that is often not discussed in the church, it is a topic that is very much considered in the Bible. Actually, if you take out your Bible this morning and hold it up, how many of you brought a Bible to church? Can I see it? All right, you brought a Bible to church. Now, if you were to survey the scriptures and walk from Genesis to Revelation, what you will discover is that there are a lot of verses. In fact, someone has said this, that there are over 500 different verses on prayer. Now, I didn't go through and count them all this week. I just took someone's own estimation. But how many of you would say 500 verses about prayer sounds like a lot? Can I see your hand? How many? That sounds like a lot. And how many of you think if the Bible says something to us 500 times, the Bible wants us to take heed of what is prayer? You know, I think about what Dr. Mason used to say to me often. He says, Aaron, prayer is the lifeline of the church. How many of you would affirm that, would believe that, right? So prayer is important in the body of Christ. Uh, prayer is important for the Christian. Over 500 times it's talked about in Scripture. But would it be interesting for you to find out that as you walk through the pages of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, would it surprise you that there is actually over 2,000 verses concerning money and our possessions? 
Somebody has discovered this, that out of the 10 verses, one out of every 10 verse in the New Testament is a verse concerning money or our possessions. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught deal with money. Someone has estimated this, that 25 to 33% of all of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels deals with the concept of money or our possessions. Now, I thought about it this week. I mean, you think about all that Jesus said, all that he taught, and 25 to 33% concerning money or possessions? I mean, what would you think if you were to attend church here and uh, every three to four weeks, I'm preaching a sermon on money? Some of you may not stay here very long. And yet, interesting, that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, I want to ask you a question as you think about that. Why did Jesus spend so much time in the Gospels describing money and possessions? Because Jesus understands that how a person views their wealth, how they view their money, in many senses is a thermometer of their own spiritual vitality. Jesus said it this way, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus was simply making a statement of what is true in our life, and that is this, that where we value something, that that our treasure, where our treasure is, reveals where our heart is. And as you think about the church today, or as you just think about our generation, even in the time in which we're living, there's a lot of vague concepts surrounding money. I I was walking with my brother this past week. We were out on a hike going up to McAfee's Knob, and he he tells me he's getting excited about graduating. He's a a senior in high school this year, and he took an economics class. And he said, "I, I was thinking that at least an economics class would have something about personal finance, you know? And he, He's like, but there's not as much there as I was hoping I was going to get, you know? And so you, you, you think about your own upbringing and the way that you view money. You realize this, that how we view money is often, often has been largely shaped by our own family of origin, the way that we've grown up, the way that our parents handled money, whether good or bad. And that in of itself becomes an example to us of how we might handle money. So by way of introduction this morning, even before we just jump into the scriptures together, I want to just briefly give us a few introductory thoughts that might frame and shape what we're about to consider this morning. Notice, what does the Bible say about money? Just just by way of introduction. First this morning, you'll notice the Bible doesn't condemn people for having money. In fact, the Bible teaches that money is neutral. Will you turn to your neighbor and say that money is neutral? Money is neutral. The Bible would describe that it is neither good nor evil. And it's very interesting that money has such a powerful way of shaping us as individuals. It has a way of weaving into our thoughts attitudes of how we view the things that we own. I want you to think about in terms of the money that is yours, that, that oftentimes money has this way of shaping our attitudes, and sometimes our attitudes surrounding money are not healthy. Sometimes our attitudes surrounding money are toxic. They're based on fear. 
They're, they're, they're based on anxiety. They're, they're, they're attitudes that really, if we were to follow the course of where they're taking us, they are, in fact, destructive. But you'll also discover that as you look at the Bible and you consider money, that, that there is ways in which God wants us to think about money that is both life-giving and generous and blesses many. So the Bible doesn't condemn people for having money, neither this. The Bible teaches that God is the one who gives us the ability to earn wealth. Listen to what Deuteronomy says, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Paul tells Timothy in the book of Timothy, he says, but Timothy, that God has richly supplied us with all things to enjoy. And so when you look at the Bible, actually, some of the greatest examples of individuals that are set up for us as people whom we are to emulate, we discover that, that they are some of, some of the ones that the Bible directs us to were very wealthy people. Think about the wealth of Job or Abraham, Joseph or Boaz. You think of someone like Solomon or even in the early church, Lydia. The Bible tells that she was very wealthy, and those are just naming a few. So while the Bible doesn't forbid having money, what the Bible does forbid is the love of it. The love of it. In 1 Timothy, Paul warns him not to love. He says to Timothy, he says, the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Solomon, one of the greatest and wealthiest men who ever lived, listen to what his assessment was of wealth. He said, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. So when you go to the Gospels and you look at how Jesus dealt with people uh, concerning money, he spoke actually very harshly to a group of individuals. You remember who Jesus spoke very harshly to in the Gospels concerning money? It was the Pharisees. And what does Jesus say about the Pharisees? He, he, he accused them of being lovers of money. And the fact was, he was exactly right. It was like Jesus, his, his words are like a heat-seeking missile into their heart of what they are truly valuing and that the hypocrisy that is truly within them. And so when we think about being lovers of money, I find it interesting as we open up our Bible, I think a lot of us, when we think about, okay, well, the Bible is neutral concerning money, but it's bad to love money. And a lot of us, I think, as we think about people being lovers of money, we just naturally think about people who have a lot of money, right? But that's not actually true. If you just think it out, uh, somebody can have a whole lot of money and can hold it rather openly. And someone can have a little bit of money and they can love it like crazy. So the point is not how much money you have, but the point is the attitude to the money that we personally hold in our hearts. You see, one of the greatest dangers in loving money is what the Bible describes, not just in one place, but in many places, and that is this, that people would love their money to the place that they actually would forget God. I want to direct your attention overhead to a few passages. 
These are from a whole bunch of different genres, but just a sampling of verses. We could have gone to others. Notice with me in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11. Notice what God warns his people. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his rules, his statutes, which I command to you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you say the next word. Forget, you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Jesus said it a different way in Matthew chapter 6. Notice how Jesus described it. He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Money. And then notice how Paul describes it to Timothy. He says, but as for the rich in this present age, hey, can I let you on something this morning? That's you. That's you. (laughs) Instantly, some of you are like, "Uh uh-uh, not as rich as the guy sitting next to me or the guy two rows in front of me. According to this world system and what you have by living in this area, you are exceptionally wealthy. You see, in life, we always, the, the, the more wealth that we gain for ourselves, the further we set the goalposts out farther of how much wealth is truly enough. I mean, how many of you think back 10 years ago to how much you had? Do you remember what it was like? I mean, I remember my wife and I getting married like 10 years ago. We're coming up on our anniversary in January. I don't know if when we got married, we had uh, enough money to, to really do anything. I mean, I, mean I, I can't even put a number on it. I just remember thinking we had spent a whole bunch of money on the honeymoon and getting settled and getting into a house. And then I'm thinking, whoa, how are you supposed to, you know? And then you, the, the, the further you get, the more that you have and the more that you realize that, that sometimes the subtle thing in our minds is that what? That, well, that we need more. And so you think about a question this morning, well, how much is enough? Right? What number would you set for yourself? Some crazy number. You're like, if I could have X, that would be enough. Come on, think about it. Million? Two million? Some of you are like, 10 million? Like, that, if I got that... I'd be good. But now I ask you this question. How much would be too much? How much would be too much? You see, we all can think about wanting more. Paul warns the church about the rich. That's us. Not to be haughty. Not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches. But on who? Someone tell me. But on who? Say it louder. On God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You see what the Bible is describing for us? It's describing for us our attitude towards what we have in life. And the greatest danger toward loving money is that somehow that that would grow within us this attitude of dependency that we now rely on this uncertainty of riches rather than trust and rely on God. So the issue is not money. It's not how much a person has or how little they have. It's their attitude towards it is what the Bible is describing for us. And that's all by way of introduction. So would you stand with me this morning and let's pray for the Lord to bless our message this morning. Father, we need your help today. We pray that as we consider this great topic, that you would give us your mind, your wisdom, your word. Lord, may we not think about others this morning. May we think about ourselves. 
May we think about what, who we are and, Lord, what you've been called us to and entrusted us with. And we pray that you would do a profound work in our hearts this morning in the life of this church for your glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. If you're taking notes with me this morning, let me give you three things. Three things about a stewardship of our wealth. Stewardship of our wealth. Notice firstly this morning, God owns everything. Turn to your neighbor and tell him this morning that God owns everything. He owns everything and God needs nothing. And God is in need of no one. When you open up the pages of the Bible, Psalm 24, notice what it says. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the Bible says. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. In Acts 17, notice what, notice what the Bible tells for us, that the God who made this world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You see, last week we considered that God is the creator of all things. And by being creator, he speaks everything into existence. He's in need of no one. He's dependent upon no one. I'm telling you, my friend, that causes us to have a sober judgment about our thinking. God doesn't need any one of us to further his purpose on this earth. He's not in need of us. Sometimes I've had people say, Pastor, Pastor the church isn't going to make it without us. That's not true. And if, if we start thinking in terms of that, 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 that we are somehow the answer to, to life's greatest problem, if, if somehow we begin to think of ourselves too highly, then we miss who God is and what is truly his. He owns everything. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God's not lacking this morning. I love how C.S. Lewis put it in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, every faculty you have by power of thinking or moving of your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you would not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. It's like a small child going to his father and saying, Daddy, give me six pence to buy you a birthday present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. It's like taking my daughter to Chuck E. Cheese on Friday night. We had dinner and thought, my sister's in town, we'll go have a fun little evening and go spend a couple dollars on the Chuck E. Cheese. Everything's changed nowadays. You remember when we were growing up, it used to be tokens and tickets. Now it's a plastic card. Everything's digital. We loaded some money, I bought some stuff, put some things on the card, and we're going around trying to get Ashlyn to do these little things, the little teacups, all these things. Well, by golly, she's two years old, but she's picking up how this thing works. A couple minutes in, she, she says, give me the card. <laughs> she's ringing the ball. I mean, it doesn't matter. The closest game, give me the card. <laughs> you know, playing the game. I don't know if we're getting anything. She goes up there to the thing to buy something, you know, and it's like, well, you know, it's all my money anyway, regardless if you give me a sticker or not, you know. You see what Lewis is saying? He's saying what God has given us, he already owns. There is nothing that you could possibly give him 
that he doesn't already own. He owns everything. God owns everything. And as we think about our theology of wealth, my friend, we have to begin there. That he owns everything. And that's why the Bible throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see this thing called the principle of first fruits in Scripture. It is this principle that God has given you something and out of your increase, whatever that is, you give a portion back to God. Why? Because it symbolizes that God is the owner of everything. Proverbs says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your increase. Do you see what the Bible's saying? That, 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 that we don't want to mistake what that symbol is. That, 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 that when we come to church and we give unto the Lord, or as you give back to God in, in life, you, you do so because, because it's not that as if somehow God owns that portion and you own the rest of it. No, God owns all of it. And by giving a portion back to him, that principle of first fruits, what you're saying is that this is a symbol that speaks for the rest. That he's the owner of everything. And I don't want God's symbol of what he owns ending up at my house. <laughs> you know, So I want to be a generous steward with what God has given me. And as I give back to the Lord faithfully, what do we do? We give in a way to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and to show and recognize that God owns everything. Will you say that with me this morning? God owns everything. That's the first point on a theology of stewardship. But secondly, God owns everything. But secondly, notice this. Anything I've been given is grace. Anything I've been given is grace. Man, I sure hope this morning you didn't wake up and put your feet on the floor thinking as if somehow you deserve something. None of us deserve anything. Do you know what I really deserve? Do you know what I really deserve? Someone tell me, what do I really deserve? I deserve wrath. But God's given me mercy. I woke up this morning deserving wrath. That's what Aaron Mansfield and his sinful humanity deserves. But God gave me mercy. Think about what the psalmist says. Notice these two verses, Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all he made. Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which with he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you're saved. God help us from thinking that when we wake up in the morning somehow we are deserving of something. Do you know what we're deserving of? We're deserving of wrath. But in place, God gave us what? Mercy and grace. And it's what we sung about this morning, grace upon grace. I don't know about you, but my friend, that'll humble you right then and there. To realize that all of us in this room, every one of us included, are a debtor to mercy. So then secondly, the theology of stewardship is this, that anything I've been given is grace, because God is a loving and generous God. There was no one who was more rich in terms of riches than the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, 
he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Just let that sink in a minute. Jesus left the glories of heaven. We can't even fathom that. He left the glories of heaven and was born in a stinky, dirty stable. He grew and lived this life, the Bible says, with such hostility of sinners against himself. His whole life was a struggle. To the very end, when he gave up his life willingly on a cross like a common criminal. And you know what the gospel says? The gospel says that your arrogance and your pride and your stinginess and your covetousness and all your sinfulness was put on him. In exchange, you know what he does? He gives you his mercy. He gives you grace. So that, notice the Bible says, by his poverty, you might become rich. Never thought about that before, have you? That Jesus was so poverty stricken so that you might know what it is to have abundance. This is who God is. This is the essence of God in his self-giving love that he gives of himself sacrificially, so generously, so that when you come to know him as your savior and by grace through faith you accept Christ into your life and the spirit of God comes to live within you, the spirit of God's the one that's molding and moving and, and constraining your heart with such love that you think about the love of the savior You think about the love of what Jesus did for you that compels you in your generosity to love other people. So notice, this is our theology of wealth, that God owns everything. And then secondly, anything I've been given is grace. If if we've received such grace, if we've received such generosity, (coughs) excuse me, then isn't the implication that the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the most selfless, generous people alive? If if the church has been so radically transformed by this, it makes us realize that, Lord, anything you've entrusted me with, anything you've given to me is all grace. So let me steward it and use it and bless people for your glory because you went to such poverty so that I might know the depth of the riches unimaginable. And the church is a people that's been changed like that. So what is our theology of wealth? That God owns everything. Secondly, anything I've been given, anything I've received is of grace. And then thirdly, notice with me this morning, as a Christian, here's the big one, I don't belong to myself. Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have of God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You see, if you've trusted Christ for your Savior, He's the new master of your life. Your life's not your own anymore. You've been bought with a price. That's why Paul says in Corinthians, for what do you have that you did not receive? Answer, (laughs) nothing. Everything I have in life, I've received. And so when we think about that, what do we discover? Well, As people, as the church of Jesus Christ, God is calling us to this unbelievable generosity that we find represented in him. As we think about Jesus and his life, his death and his resurrection, the way that Jesus gave so selflessly, 
You and I, as his followers, are, are to be unbelievably generous in our life. We're to be unbelievably generous as stewards. That's why Paul encouraged the church. He reminds them in Philippians 4 that my God will supply every needs of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Friends, do you believe that? Like, do you really, really believe that God is able to supply all that you need in him? See, if you doubt that, what you discover is that you find that your reliance and your trust is probably more in your wealth than in God. God wants you to trust him. As a father, he wants you to trust him. Do you not think God knows what you need? But he knows exactly what we need. And our lives belong to him. You see, the early church was marked by such a selfless generosity because of the generosity of God. And when you open up the Bible in the book of Acts, what you discover is that the early church gave in profound, generous ways. Actually, you read the book of Acts, and it's quite staggering to see the way that the early church gave. And there was two primary ways in the Bible that we see the early church giving recognizing that they don't belong to themselves, but they've been bought with a price. And so in their stewardship and in their generosity, there are these two ways that they gave. Notice the first one is this. The church gave in terms of their benevolence. From the day of Pentecost onward, you discover that the church of Jesus Christ is born and that people's lives are being changed, but the early church faced a lot of hardship. I mean, you don't have to read the book of Acts very far to discover that the church was marked by such great persecution. They were facing poor economic conditions. There was a worldwide famine we read about. And there were all these challenges that the early church was facing. And so in light of all of that, recognizing that what they've been given was by grace and that they were not their own, the church takes up this collection for the church and the saints in Jerusalem. They provide for this poverty-stricken church. And they gave of their things in ways that cost them. They felt it. Reminds me of the old story of a pastor who was preaching out in a country church. He pastored a country church. And his church was filled with all these farmers. And he was teaching his congregation on the importance of giving. And he singled out someone in his congregation. And he said, Farmer Jones, he says, Farmer Jones, if you had $1,000, would you give $500 to the Lord? Farmer replied, sure would, pastor. Farmer Jones, if you had two cows, would you give one to the Lord? Sure would, pastor. Farmer Jones, if you had two pigs, would you give one to the Lord? He hollered out, now, pastor, that ain't fair. You know I have two pigs. Because it hurts, right? I mean, it's like, ooh, wait, God wants me to give that. Like, it's easy to justify in our minds how we don't have to give what other people give because of what other people have. But when God lays it on us, it says, you need to do this. You need to do this to be a wise, faithful steward. You need to do this to be generous. You need to, you need to do this because someone is in need. I'm telling you, the early church got it. Do you know why they got it? because they recognized that the stuff they had belonged to God. And anything they had was by grace. And so I think they just really trusted that if they were to give it, God was going to be able to meet a need in a profound way through some other means. So the church gave. Notice, how did they give? 
They gave in terms of benevolence, but secondly, the church gave to support those leading and serving and the ones that were sent in the mission of the church. Notice that was why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's why when Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, he tells tells Timothy as the church is setting up how they are to handle things, he says in 1 Timothy 5, notice what he says. He says, let the elders who rule be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So you see what the early church recognized was there was tremendous need in the life of the congregation. There was tremendous need in the community for benevolence, and they gave out. But then secondly, what do we discover? That the early church gave in those who were leading and those who were serving in the body. And they, 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 they did so in a way, notice what the Bible's saying, out of honor. So can I ask you, my friend, you know, the church, those of us who are in Christ, none of us belong to ourselves. We all belong to him because he owns everything. In the church of Jesus Christ ought to be the portrait of generosity. It ought to be a place where we recognize that we are not owners, we are simply stewards. But you know, there's a lot of confusing perspectives of money even within the church. You think about all the ways that you hear money taught, and sometimes it's not really taught well. And there's some theologies that I think are present in many churches and and, and one is helpful and the other is quite damaging. There are some who advocate for a prosperity theology. Well, a prosperity theology in the way that we've seen it, probably the way you're thinking about it, is probably not healthy. But yet we've, we've allowed that to somehow overshadow the promises of God's word that he says, if you give, God will bless you. Like there's these, there's these, there's these things that we begin to think about and we, we see the abuse of it in our own culture. We see the challenges of, of the prosperity gospel mu- movement in our own culture. That's not what the Bible calls us to. But on the flip side, the Bible doesn't call us to this poverty theology. And I'm telling you, that's just alive and rampant in the church. But as stewards, God deserves our best. When we give to the Lord and as we steward what he's entrusted with us, we do so in a way because how we act as a steward reflects on our master. How how we treat people reflects on the heart of God himself. And so notice what you discover here. There's a big difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundant mindset. And sadly, many churches fall into the lie of this scarcity mindset, which is all motivated by thinking on money that is not healthy. It's rooted in fear and anxiety. But what God wants us to experience is this stewardship of our wealth, as we see in Scripture, one that is an abundant mindset, the one that... That, that, that realizes that, well, notice, you've turned there. Let's just read it together. 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 and 8. Really, this is how the Bible summarizes our stewardship of our wealth. The point's pretty clear. Notice this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap what? What does the Bible say? Sparingly. But whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. 
Each one must give. Now notice the Bible assumes that followers of Christ will give. Jesus, when he was talking to his disciples, did not say, and if you give. He says, and when you give. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, and that word cheerful is the word we get hilarious, giver. And God is able, notice this promise, to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Do you believe God can do that for our church? Do you believe God can do that for your life? But notice verse 8 precedes verse 6 and 7. So that God is able to make all grace abound to you and having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's why Paul says, as he quotes Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So can I ask you this question? What is our theology of giving say about ourselves? Well, if we read the Bible, we realize it says quite a lot. I love how Billy Graham put it. He said, every person's checkbook is a theological document. It tells you who and what you worship. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So can I ask you this morning, where's your heart? Where's your treasure? And can I ask you a few questions as we close this morning and you think about these for yourself? What would it look like in your life today if you were to embrace the attitude that God has toward money? What would it mean in your life today if you began to embrace God's attitude toward money in your own life? Secondly, how might you think less in terms of what you think you deserve and more along the lines of being so grateful for what you've been given? And thirdly and finally this morning, I wonder what would Jesus say to you? Better yet, what will he say to you when you stand before him one day and give an account for how you handled the responsibility that was entrusted to him? And what you discover in all of that is you say, Lord, I need to realize that you own everything. Anything I've been given is by grace. My life doesn't belong to me. It belongs to him who lived and died for me. And I want to model the attitude of Jesus. I want to model the attitude of Jesus that is selfless in generosity, that is selfless in love, the one that is selfless in showing honor and appreciation, the one that is selfless in, in, in all the areas of our life and our wealth. Because what we realize is one day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all will, and give an, an, an account for all the things we've done in our own personal finances, the things that we've done in the responsibilities that he's entrusted to us, God's expecting a return on what he's given you. He, he's, he's expecting you to be faithful, to be a faithful and wise steward. We see that so many times in the parables that Jesus tells. Why? Why, why is he so concerned about this? Because he's not only concerned about our physical life. Jesus is concerned about our eternal life.
And he understands that where our treasure is, is where our heart is. I think a lot of us need to stop thinking so short-sighted with our wealth and think more long-term in what God would have us to do to be a faithful steward of all he's given us. So he's blessed you. He's given you. The question now is, what will you do with what you've been given? Would you bow your head with me this morning? Father, we confess as a church what your word says, that you own everything. You own our life. You own our bank account. You own our stuff. Lord, our family is yours. Lord, this church is yours. Father, help us. We pray you would help us to to model the heart of Jesus. Lord, help us to be people not with closed fists, but to be people with open hands. Lord, help us to so treasure you above anything else that, that every choice we make is ultimately filtered through that thought of how is this honoring and pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God, we're just thankful. We pray that we would be stewards that Lord, one day we'll be able to look back on what you've entrusted us with and be able to say like those guys in the parable, God, you gave me this, but I doubled it for your kingdom and, and you'll say those words, well done. So Lord, help us this morning to be faithful stewards of all you've entrusted. Right now, as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I wonder how are you answering those three questions? I'm not gonna have you come forward this morning. We're not gonna have a come forward invitation, but the opportunity is right there in your seat this morning. Would you meditate and ask those three questions again to yourself and how would you answer them? What would it look like in your life today if you were to embrace the attitude that God has in regards to money? Really, the question is what in your life would need to change to be in line with God's heart? Secondly, how might you think less in terms of what you deserve and more along the lines of being so grateful for what you've already been given? Why don't you confess the the sins in your own heart of just being selfish or prideful or arrogant or all the things that lead us to to, to, to be concerned about our own life rather than concerned about God's, God's will. And then the last thing this morning, how, how would you, how would, how would you, what would you say to Jesus one day when you stand before him? And how would you give an account for the responsibilities entrusted to you right now? And once again, what in your life today might need to change? What, what things might you need to pursue? What, what things might you need to stop? that you can do the right thing to, to live a life that pleases and honors the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for how you've worked in our hearts this morning. All the praise and glory of what happens here, Lord, goes to you. We thank you, Lord, for your incredible selfless generosity, for your grace that, Lord, we can't even fathom this morning. But we thank you for it. And we, we relish, Lord, just the joy that comes from, from, from all of your good hand. And so God, help us to pass it on in a way that blesses others. We ask it in your mighty name. All God's people said, amen. Would you stand with me this morning? Well, this week, let's be faithful to the Lord and take every opportunity that he's given us to honor Christ with our life and our words and our deeds. 
You know, I tell you this every Sunday, but often every Sunday, but as we leave this week, we're leaving to head into a world that desperately needs the hope of the gospel. Um, I pray this week people would see something different in your life. I pray that they would see the joy and the hope and the peace that comes from Jesus. I pray that they'd see the way that you live life and the things that you do and the things you don't do uh, to bring honor and glory to his name. Well, this week we're going to enjoy Wednesday night midweek studies. We have our, um, we're going through a series on discipleship on Wednesday nights in the chapel. I invite you to come. Uh, Our young people, I have a WANA and youth group, a lot's happening this week. This whole week, there's things happening for almost every age group here at Catawba. And so please check the bulletin and see what's happening so you can be a part of it.